0: You're listening to the Centre Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message recorded live from our Brighton campus. We're doing a series at the moment called Walk, and um, I guess some some in the room won't have been um, won't have been kind of caught up with our series. So just briefly to, to kind of catch you up on where we've been going with this, we're kind of talking about our walk with God, our relationship with God um and and kind of different aspects of that how we how it kind of works out in our in our lives and all that kind of stuff so we looked at baptism um on the day when Megan got baptized yay that was awesome um then we looked at um fuel for the journey this idea of um of the presence of God or the voice of God kind of giving us fuel for the journey that he's taking us on that it's not just something that is without purpose, but there's a purpose um, to the presence of God. I think the phrase was that the presence of God gives purpose to the journey. And then we we looked at, um, on the video link service, Tyler looked at this whole aspect of sharing our faith with other people, what that means, how to kind of practically um, work that out. And it was a, it was a good challenging one, that one. I think, for, for all of us. So that was pretty cool. Um, and last week, Mava shared with us about worship, um, which was really good as well. Why do we worship? What's it all about? Kind of what's the, what's the point of it? And we looked through kind of some passages that help us with that. And today, my theme is called Table Walkers. So, which is all about walking on tables. No. <laughs> um, we'll watch a video, and hopefully that will set the mood for us a little bit. So turn your eyes to the screen. Um, there'll be a video that, that comes on in just a second. The table is where life happens. It's where imagination runs wild. Where lessons are learned. And wonders are built. The table is where time can stop. Where wounds are comforted. freedom begins. It's where we find peace. And we laugh till it hurts. The table is where we gather with family, new and old, to share stories. To nourish our bodies, to enrich our souls. The table is where we give thanks, and where we remember what great gifts we have. So perhaps that one sets the scene a little bit of of the theme that we're we're talking about. Um, Yeah, we're talking about communion, talking about the table. Um, And we have a phrase, it's up on the wall, so I'm pretty safe to say that it's definitely a phrase that we have here, um, of a place at the table for everyone. It's going to pop on the screen as well. There we go. Um, And... I was kind of thinking about like, do we really do we really know what that means? Is it just like one of those? So it sounds like a really good phrase, that, but we don't really know like what it means. Like you get taglines for companies. My favourite one, um, my favourite one is one in Burgess Hill, because it's it's just the most ridiculous tagline I've ever come across. The company's called IT First, and their tagline is "Putting your IT." first (laughs) which obviously that's that's the name of the company so that's obviously what what they're trying to do um so i find that one brilliant but you get like you got like nike just do it or like you know other other ones i'm trying to think um even the coffee cups have got the kingdom coffee cups they say coffee with a conscience that's their kind of tagline so all these kind of like little taglines do we really know what they mean when we say them so it's like, well, we like to say there's a place at the table for everyone. Does that mean that when you come in, there's going to be a seat next to a table that you'll be able to sit at? Or is there a bit more of a, of a depth to what we're saying and what we're meaning? Um, how, in a sense, does it shape our theology? Or how is our theology shaped by an understanding of communion, understanding of, of that meal, the, the Lord's Supper? um i think we have here a table shaped mission and i'm going to talk when i talk about table walkers what i mean is like being table shaped shaped around our theology and our, our lives shaped around the the table shaped around the communion meal and how um, hopefully we'll unpack that a little bit of what what we mean by that um but i think we have a table shaped mission because I think there are, three, there are three things that we kind of um, partake in that we are uniquely positioned to do here as a church. We're uniquely positioned to offer these things to people. So hope is probably the first one. Um, and that hope is comes straight from kind of what they call the words of institution in First Corinthians 11. You've got this idea that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes. You see, our hope is in something. Our hope and our future is in something. And so when we, when we share together, when we have this meal together, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a future element to what we believe. We believe that God's coming again, don't we? Do we? Yes. yes. Believe that Jesus is coming again. We believe that there's, there's this whole aspect of eternity, that, that when we talk about new life and life to the full, we're not just talking about here and now, although kind of eschatologically speaking, there's a here and a now aspect of what God is doing and the change and the transformation that he brings in our lives. And usually the biblical word for that is usually sanctification, of, of the change that, that kind of the spirit does in our lives, that God does in our lives. But there's a future there's a hope. There's a, there's a hope that we look to that, that God's making all things new. That how we look at things now with our eyes is not how God sees things. And that the kingdom of God actually is different to the way that we maybe see things in the here and now. So there's a hope in the table. There's a hope that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we, when we share together, um a bit later, we remember that aspect of it. Actually, this is this is not just about here and now and my relationship with God here and now. But there's a prophetic future element to this meal that actually Christ is coming again. And how can I know that? Well because I proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as you'll see kind of as we go through later, there's that each of the five senses are um, I kind of I'm trying to think of the right word, recognized in, in the meal. We have the, the idea of, of taste, of smell, of, of touch, of look, and of even hearing throughout the, the meal that we have in, in the New Testament. So we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's, that's the first part. The second part is community. And you can say, well, it's it's called communion. That's got, like, the word community kind of smashed in there. So we kind of know that that's kind of what it's about. And you can't very well take communion on your own because you can't really share with one another Um, very well. Um, But we gather, don't we? We gather together. This is whenever whenever you meet together, do this in remembrance of me whenever you meet together. See, we share with one another. The passage that we're going to read in a minute also says, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And we'll look at that in a little bit more depth as we go in, because it's not, this is a little precursor, but it's not just talking about, should we all get a bit of bread and then wait until everyone's got a bit of bread and then check that everyone's having it and then all have it at the same time? It's kind of more than that. It's kind of not just not just that, but more than. And we'll we'll look at that. But there's a community aspect that's represented by the table that says something of who the church is supposed to be. We are the body of Christ. We talk about the bread as this is Jesus says, This is my body, which is broken for you. If you go back into chapter ten of First Corinthians, it says we're all one body because we all share. In one bread, and then interestingly, you go to chapter twelve of First Corinthians, and there's this whole passage of verses, um, fourteen verses, all about the body and the church as the body, and and what that means. And it says, "If one suffers, all suffer together." You know, there's a, it's a really famous passage, but we don't often realise there's a link in all of that, and th- and it's all surrounding the meal, it's all surrounding the meal practice. I find it really interesting, actually, that the communion passage comes off the back of three chapters of Paul talking about food. Like if we think that food's not very important, for the Corinthians, it was kind of a big deal. They were they were getting it all wrong, like they were food offered to idols. You've got chapter 8, 9, and 10, all about food offered to idols, and you get chapter 11, and you've got this... Bit yeah, about communion and the meal that they share together. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. So community and gathering is exemplified somehow in this meal. And the third one is is purpose. We have a purpose to proclaim his death until he comes. Jesus' victory gives us purpose. Um. What's the meaning of life? What's God calling me to? What is my purpose on earth? What is my kind of mission? What is, you know, which car should I buy? You've not prayed that one. Um, or, you know, what, what is, I'm going to put a fleece out, I'm going to ask God, or, or all these kind of things that we do. What's the purpose and how does the meal exemplify this purpose? Simply, the purpose is to proclaim his death until he comes. This meal reminds us of that. What does Jesus say um, in Matthew 28, 19? He says that um, to, to go into all the world and make disciples. He says um, in Luke that the fields are white to harvest, but the laborers are few. Therefore, send um, pray to the Lord the harvest to send workers. Therefore, go. There's a going element to it. And the, this idea of proclaiming his death, how do people know about the death and resurrection of Jesus, or we proclaim it. If we don't tell them, they don't know. And I talk about, um, you probably, if you've been in the church any length of time, maybe more than a week, you've probably heard me talk about spheres of influence, and we all have these unique spheres of influence. Like I have my friends, you have your friends, um, you have your friends, etc., etc. I can't influence your friends any better than you can influence mine. So how does that happen? It happens by proclaiming the Lord's death. How are we reminded that we need to do that? Well, the meal is a good reminder because it's right in there in the text. So that's just a little a little bit of what I want to share, and I want to dive into First Corinthians um, chapter eleven verses seventeen to thirty-four, and we're going to read through it. Um, I'm really not sure how much time I'm going to have to go through everything I want to go through, or if it's all going to work or not, but we'll see, and um, we'll do the best that we can. So it's going to come up on the screen, um, 17 to 34, I think my translation should be the same. So, now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it's not really the Lord's Supper, Um, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together... It will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. That's our text for this morning. And Paul's saying, really, in this whole passage, be shaped by the table. Be shaped by the table. I find it interesting that right in the middle of that passage, you've got kind of condemnation stuff going on, and you've got like kind of judgment stuff going on on the other side. Right in the middle... You've got the, the words that, of institution, as it's normally called, of what Jesus has kind of said. It's like that is the, that's the corrective that Paul wants to put there. How do we correct what's going wrong in Corinth? Listen to what Jesus said. Fairly straightforward. So first question is, what is happening in Corinth? How can we know? What's happening in Corinth. And I want to share a couple of things with you. Um, that basically what's going on is we've got two groups kind of against each other in in the church in Corinth. You've got those who have and those who don't have. Maybe you've come across that in life. There's those who have and those who don't have, to differing kind of extents. And um, the haves, so-called, in the church are giving themselves this title of the genuine. They know that they're the genuine ones. They're the ones who have, they have all the, they have the honour. Honour is a big deal in the first, in first century Corinth. Honour and shame is a really big deal. So they have honour, they have money, they have wealth, they have the, they have the homes to kind of host these meals. You're talking about, maximum of around about 30 or 40 people could gather in one of these homes or one of these places that they were worshiping in and the genuine were the ones with that they were the ones who had and the have-nots are your kind of um people on the breadline or below the breadline below subsistence level as they call it and you might have um you might have slaves in that category you might have um day laborers Um, and that kind of thing going on. Interestingly, what's going on in Corinth at the time is there's a famine. There's quite a severe famine. And we know this to be, like, deadly accurate because um, we can can pretty accurately date the book of Corinthians to when Paul wrote it. And um, for a few reasons, which I can go into, if you want to chat about it later, I can um, go through it. But we can accurately date it, and we know that at the time... There was a severe famine going on in Corinth, and so what happens to kind of finances when there's a famine is that the cost of food goes up. Inflation and supply and demand, all those kind of rules. Um, so those who were just about getting by, all of a sudden are not are not quite getting by as well as they were before, um, and so you're right on the breadline. And, and there's a significant proportion they reckon. Um, some of the research they've done into it, they reckon about 68% of people are right on that level of on the breadline or below it. Often when we hear about like things in the Roman era, you hear about like those elites and the generals, and you think, oh, it would be so great to live in the Roman era. Well, yeah, if you're part of like 1% or 2% at the top, it would be fantastic. But for the majority of people, they're in the have-not category. So for the majority of each one of us, and what I want us to do is place us in that have-not category this morning, because for the majority of us, that's where we would be. Okay. And so, if we look at verse 22, it tells it says, um, "Do you not have homes to eat and drink in, or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those?" You have nothing? What do we do? Well, what's going on in Corinth is that there's some people going on with what they call their own supper, or what Paul calls this is this is your own supper. You're having your own meal. This is not a meal in honor of the Lord. This is a meal in honor of whoever's hosting it. So if you're if you're in um, first century Corinth. You, and you are kind of having a, having a gathering, you're having a a meal, um, you're having your friends around and this sort of thing. Say David's hosting a meal, it would be a meal in honor of David because it's his meal, it's his gathering. He'd be the head of the table, he'd be the one that we kind of like, um, if I am, if I'm good friends with David, if I'm high up in society, I get a seat close to David because I'm, I'm the most honorable. If, if he says, no, no, don't sit there, you need to sit a couple of seats down, then I'm a grumbling to myself and I'm complaining because I'm, I'm no longer as honorable as this other person. And, or if I arrive late and someone's taken my seat, then they've stolen my place of honor and i, and I moved down one. And it's this whole social stuff is going on that we sometimes don't realize when we, when we just read through the passage. And what Paul does is he put Jesus right at the center of this meal. He says, this is actually a meal in honor of Jesus. And what did Jesus do at the Last Supper? He gives the disciples a foot washing. This is, this is the most dishonorable thing to do. This is putting himself at, at the bottom. This is, this is saying, actually, what is, what is honorable in the world and in this kingdom is, is dishonorable to God. And, and, and the whole thing is flipped upside down, flipped on its head. So I find that really interesting, how that whole dynamic works. Paul puts Jesus at the head of the table. The next point is that one goes hungry whilst another gets drunk. Can you see a pattern kind of emerging in in this passage of what's happening in Corinth? It makes it quite clear for us really that one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Those who do not have, don't really have homes to eat and drink in, actually. A lot of them, if they're slaves, they don't have their their own place. A lot of them are, are kind of living in a one-bedroom thing. Some some even without real places to make meals for themselves and make food for themselves, all that kind of stuff. And they come to this community, you know, oh, fantastic. I'm coming to the the church where you know we're all equal there's there's no slave or free there's no male and female we're all equal in God's kingdom and i arrive after my long busy day and there's no food left because everyone's drunk and enjoying themselves and there's nothing for me anymore there's nothing for you anymore because it's all gone so that brings into perspective a little bit this this idea of waiting for one another because when we talk about this, we're not talking about taking a little piece of bread and everyone praying together and, and thinking about um, my relationship with God and, and this, that, and the other. And, you know, it's, and coming kind of reverently before Him. We're, th- we're thinking about a, a meal, a party in honor of Jesus and what's supposed to be in honor of Jesus and His self-sacrifice, His sacrificial acts that made this whole thing happen. We're getting drunk at it, or we're, we're not saving food for other people at it, and something's going wrong there. So one goes hungry, another goes drunk, and then the next, the next part of this of this passage is um, where, in verse, two, is it twenty nine? Yeah, twenty nine. He says, "For all who eat and drink without discerning the body." eat and drink judgment against themselves. Now, that idea of what is discerning the body, because in some of, the, some of the old translations, it was, it was added the body of the Lord. Actual in the Greek, that's not there. It's just without discerning the body. So what do we mean by without discerning the body? Well, there are different opinions among scholars on this. Is it, is it or it should be, we mean just kind of like without discerning the body of the Lord, like giving proper recognition to God. Is there a community aspect to it? So remember back to um, chapter 10, verse 17, it says we're all one body because we all share in one bread. And then Paul talks here about how we're supposed to discern the body. And if you do it without discerning the body, you're, you're doing it kind of in judgment. And then in chapter 12, he talks about the body. And how the eye can't say to the hand, you know, I want to want to be like you on this, this, that, and the other. And um, it culminates in verse 26 of chapter 12, saying, "If one suffers, all suffer." You know, if you stub your toe, it's not just your toe that's in pain. I cut my finger on a guillotine, and the whole office heard. <laughs> Mavis laughing because she she heard the screams. She thought it was a woman. Um, But it wasn't just my finger that was in pain. My whole body was in pain because I cut my finger and it's attached to me. And it's like, ah, we all suffer together. Um, There's that whole aspect of it. And I I recognize what Paul was saying in that moment. Um, And so we bought a new guillotine because it's got a safety thing that you can't cut your finger on. Uh, What I want to say, really, is there's a community aspect. There's a horizontal relationship that we're looking at in the meal. Without discerning the body means look around you. You know, am I am I kind of taking all the food? Remember the context of this passage. Am I taking all the food that's meant for everybody else? I'm having a fantastic feast. And then, you know, Johnny and Steve are coming in from working a long day. And there's no food left from Johnny and Steve are first century names, you understand. Um, is that what's happening? You know? And so a couple more things that I want to point out in this passage is that there's this word, oikos, which is not only a Greek yogurt. Um, you had an oikos yogurt? They're pretty nice. Annalise is nodding. Um, But the word oikos is house or household, right? And this is a really interesting word in this context. Because the passage says, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Well, the answer for some of those people in Corinth would be, no, we don't. That's why we're coming to have our meal. We don't have homes to go and eat and drink in. We don't have this. We don't have that, the other. So... We're expecting that God's going to kind of provide for us in this situation. And I arrive and everyone's eating everything. That's not really what I signed up for kind of thing. And that's not what I thought everyone else signed up for. I thought there was a kind of equality going on. I thought there was a kind of community going on. And so this idea of the oikos, the household, is actually the place where that the church has, the church community that's specifically for the purpose of eating and drinking. Do you not have oikos for the purpose of eating and drinking? Yeah, we do. But when when they arrive, we've eaten it all. There's a, there's a kind of disconnect going on. Because we're doing the whole cultural first century honor thing. And Paul's saying, this is not a meal in honor of the guests, of the host. But well, actually, Jesus is hosting this meal. And a meal in honor of Jesus means that we share with one another, means that there's community, means that there's love, means that there's grace, all that kind of stuff. So this idea of the oikos, the household that we have specifically for the purpose of eating and drinking, listen to this, it says in verse 22, do you not have homes, oikos, to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Come to the household. Come to the household. And if you want to know what that looks like in practice, go to verse 34 that says, If you are hungry, eat at the oikos. Eat at the household. See, Paul's not saying, If you're hungry, eat at home before you come so that when you have a, you're not having too much of the little bits of bread and the little bits of wine, he's not saying if you're hungry, have a full meal at home and then you can just have half portions when you arrive to the communion meal. But actually he's saying, if someone's hungry, bring them in, feed them, share with one another, wait for one another. That's This whole aspect of waiting for one another is sharing with one another. Why do you think that people... In this context, of falling weak, sick, and dying. Have you ever thought about it from the other side? But what I want to ask us, and we're going to share together um, in in the meal with one another. And and in a minute, what I want to do is kind of if you come up, either with three or four of you, or if someone gets something for the table, maybe pour out um, pour out a glass. Um, for each table and share and then get a bit of bread and share among each other, with each other on the table. That's kind of the idea of how we're going to work this out in practice. But what I want to ask is, what would happen if our walk with God became table-shaped? What would happen if our walk with Jesus became shaped around this meal, this communion meal? How do we live it out? How do we live out a meal in honour of the Lord in 2017, because we've heard how to do it wrong in Corinth, and we've heard that Paul, that Paul said, you need to put Jesus at the centre of this. So what does it mean for us today to live it out in a different way? Is it just about the communion meal? Do we make this just about this horizontal relationship between me and God? No, you know, I need to get my heart right before God, I'm going to do a little prayer, I'm going to keep everything centralize them to to myself, or do we discern the body in the sense of looking around us to the community? Is there something in that? And, you know, this meal is an example to all five senses, I think, of how to live out a new life in Christ, a life that's in honor of the Lord. We look at the meal. Every time we see bread and wine, It's a trigger that reminds us of something. Because I don't know how you learn, right? I don't know how your learning style is. All of us are are different. Some of you will learn really well from hearing me talk. Others of you will learn from doing something practical with your hands. Others of you will learn from um, other ways of learning. Um, Yeah. But when we look at the meal, we see what this represents. It's a physical Reminder that's before us, in front of us. This bread means something. This wine means something. And I challenge you, you go into the supermarket, you see the bread. How does that change the way that you act towards other people? When you touch it, when you feel it, you know, that might be something that, that for you brings a um, just brings things alive a little bit more. You, you It's something tangible it's not just, it's not just words that are spoken on a Sunday morning, but it's something tangible that every time I take a piece of bread, I go, this meal's in, in honor of, honor of the Lord. That should change the way that I live. That should change the way that I act and change the way that I do things. When we smell it, when you smell fresh, fresh bread being cooked, when you smell, um, wine or juice or, or whatever, there's something that's different when we recognize that this is in honor. Of the Lord. When you taste it, do we are our senses kind of reminded of something that's that's different? Something that's in honour of the Lord. When we hear those words that I'll read out again in a second, the words of institution in the middle of that passage, do we hear this as a meal in honour of the Lord? Jesus said. I stand at the door and knock. And what does he say after that? He doesn't say, if anyone opens the door, I'll come into their life and be their Lord and Saviour. He actually says, if anyone opens the door, I'll come in and eat with them and they with me. Meals are important. Meals are important. See, I love for one another is shown by whether we welcome Jesus at the head of our table or whether we eat in honour of someone else, something else. It's a challenge not only for us here and now, but a challenge every time we eat together to do it in remembrance of him. Can I challenge you to, when you eat together, either as a family or a group of friends or, or whatever, there's... There's the, um, the classic Christian thing to do is, is to say grace beforehand, which is kind of usually just to thank God for, for the meal or whoever's prepared it or that kind of thing. Can I challenge you to do something more profound, to do something in honor of the Lord every time we eat together? Are we eating our own supper or are we eating the Lord's Supper?